0: Welcome to Habs Unfiltered, episode 255. I'm your host, Blaine putt And I'm joined now by a special guest, Marco D'Amico of Montreal Hockey Now. Welcome back to the show, Marco.
1: Thanks for having me back, bud.
0: Well, this is your first time back since you've uh, you've made it to the big leagues. So we're happy that you could come back to little old us.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I still kind of feel like I'm like Jesse Ulanen or like... Laurent Dufain or Ryan Paling, where I like, I'm still kind of like that fourth line guy that could be sent down at any moment. So I appreciate the praise, but my, my goal is to, to stay in those leagues for a little while well, and kind of grow.
0: It's all about the hustle. You you keep that hustle going. I mean, you're putting, you're putting out content three, four, five times a day. So I, I know you're super busy, so I'm really happy you found some time to come on and talk a little bit about uh, the draft. So yeah, I wanted to start it off first, though, with a discussion on development and analytics. So the Canadians hired this morning, as we record, it's the 13th of May. They brought in uh, Christopher Boucher as the head of analytics. How do you feel that that's going to impact overall on the development side?
1: There's many ways that you can use analytics to help development. Um... It's used in many places for uh, stride correction, because the way that they're tracking is not simply limited to um, it's not just simply limited to, to statistical analysis. There's motion sensing that goes into it. There's um, strategy that goes into it, like where players tend to be on the ice versus where they need to be on the ice in general situations. It'll definitely help mentally, physically and strategically in helping um, young players and existing players optimize their performances. And I feel like this is something that has been lacking, uh, for a long time since basically this became analytics became kind of a, a thing. And, you know, it's fun to see that kind of shift because it, as they said, uh, Gordon and, and Hughes said during their Q and a analytics as a bad name, you might as well just change the word to information. And would you really want to have less information just because you feel like that information renders some forms of, you know, eye testing analysis less valuable? No, you take that and you add it to what you got and you make yourself a bigger conversation. It's not about supplanting one versus the other. It's about layering your analysis to throw in numbers, throw in the eye test, throw in gut feeling, mold that all together and you go forward with a plan, be it player selection, be it pro scouting, be it amateur scouting, um, be it player development, I, any way you want to look at it, at the end of the day, I feel like it's a necessary tool. And I mean, my first job, I work in marketing. If I didn't have analytics, I would not be able to, to function, right? You'd, you'd, you'd have no way to improve on your performances. So if it works for me, it could work in sports, and if it could work for a championship organization uh, then power to the Montreal Canadiens for getting that on, on, on the run.
0: Yeah. And uh, I believe uh, in the same press conference, Hughes and Gorton were talking about the importance of translating that information to the other departments and having the right voice for that. And Boucher, he worked with San Jose. He was one of the founding members of SportsLogic IQ. So I feel like they've got the right voice there. So that, that could really help, especially on the development side, when they're going through a rebuild like they are now. You know, that's, it's important.
1: I think it's important because as we remembered uh, in 2018, they announced, uh, you know, under the burden of error, they announced a reset. And, you know, if analytics were used and a more open communication were given, how many more prospects in that time frame between 2018 and 20, uh, 2018 and, and 2021 i would say how many prospects would have developed more optimally say and i think that that's the thing you have to keep in mind like would they perhaps have been more optimal in victor Mete's development would they have been better in Yasperi kakniemi's development would they have used a guy like arturi Lekanen in a top 6 setting as opposed to just seeing him as an elite defensive player. And we can clearly see in the playoffs that those numbers are translating offensively for Colorado. So it brings extra information. And that's why development doesn't stop when you make the NHL. I like, everybody likes to say the NHL is in a developmental league. They're right. It isn't. You need to get to the NHL, but you can still improve at the NHL level. And if you don't improve, that's when you're in trouble.
0: Well, I mean, you just look at Sidney Crosby, one of the hardest working players in the league. He yeah. he's been called the world's best for years, but he never stops working at
1: improving. Correct. And I mean, geez, we can go even further back. Gila Fleur, that was, we interviewed, um, we interviewed Scotty Bowman uh, yeah. on Montreal okay. Hockey Now. And I remember him saying, you know, Gila Fleur used to show up an hour before practice, uh, would shoot pucks, would beg the backup goalie, uh, depending on who it was that year to, to, to show up a little early, take shots and, to be really ready even before practice began. So dedication and talent go a long way. And if you're able to communicate and facilitate the way in which a player can improve with the addition of information that is communicated in a way that they get it. And this is why it's going to be important because you have a guy like Martin St. Louis, Martin St. Louis is a great communicator. I sat in those press conferences listening to him. And it was like, I was back in university listening to a professor Because it was concise, it was digestible, and every time he explained something, he took the time to think about it. Those are characteristics of a good communicator, and it's essential if you're going to build a team that is going to be consistently learning and improving itself. Yeah, and he's also
0: someone that has uh, identified how to communicate to specific individuals, to break it down and provide that information to improve that one specific individual, instead of using a a wide brush uh, using a cookie cutter plan, like we had seen in the past. Um, And, and now there's, there's also an opportunity in the scouting department. Uh, Daniel Dory just stepped down from the New York Rangers. For those who don't know, he had been with uh, Boston for, I believe since 1998. And then he went to the Rangers in 06 or 07. He's been with Gorton basically for about 96
1: to yeah. 96 to 06, 07. And then 07, 08 till now in, with the Rangers.
0: Yeah. And he is, so he's been with Gorton for 20 some odd years. And he was a key figure in picking out a lot of players out of Quebec. Now he's possibly available and he has that, rep, he has that, that uh, working relationship. So yes. How big of an impact would that be to improve on
1: the scouting side? I think it's a necessary thing. I think that the Montreal Canadiens have the, the, the funds, the money, the, the will, the drive, and the need at this point to expand their scouting team. It's, it doesn't make sense that they have four scouts for all of Canada. I'm sorry, it does, it does not make sense. No. You are a top three franchise in the NHL having a developed scouting staff. To, like that allows you to really kind of bring all that information together because you're looking at over 600 kids it's it's impossible to to have 10 people do that you need to flesh it out and so you can have different layers of scouting and this is where Daniel Doré can come in he can come in and be the, the head of scouting because he's been doing this for almost 30 years it's going to be 30 is it 27 years now i think he deserves a shot at being a head scout and i would you know diminish a lot of the anxieties towards Nick Bobrov who is he's probably going to be taking care of the European side being the head guy over Martin LaPointe. And then you'd have basically Daniel Doré and then LaPointe and Bob Rob under him. And then, a, a, a you know, a flurry of, of regional scouts below. And I think that that's interesting and necessary because having a proper structure to your scouting team then allows for the proper trickle down effect of information. In this case, it would trickle up, uh, but you're able to really kind of get to the nitty gritty and those make for very interesting scouting uh, sessions. And especially if you can regionalize it throughout the year, it makes it less convoluted when teams meet together uh, and which they do about three or four times a year before the draft from January to about May in normal circumstances this year, the drafts in July. Um, So it really allows you to kind of, you know, bring digested information to the table that you can kind of present in a way that's already been peer reviewed by everybody else. And you're kind of, Able to talk to other scouts about a player that they may not, they might not have ever seen, and then you're able to far easier, uh, far easier in a way, you'd be able to produce a board that wouldn't necessarily be, uh, oh, I trust this guy's opinion over yours. It would be, oh, here are the arguments, A B C D A B C D. That's how Daniel Dore works, and if if we remember. Uh, I believe it was in 2014 in the third round. I remember the video of him banging on the table on the Rangers uh, draft board. And they ended up uh, getting up and going to pick Anthony Duclair, who grew up uh, right down the street from me in Laval. And, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, we're not sure he was ever going to make it. Boom. Next season takes off and then world junior championships and and so on and so forth. And now he's really found his groove with the Florida Panthers. So, being able to identify talent is a gift, being able to communicate their pros and cons is another. And then being able to look at what's, what's going on with them and say, they need to work on this, 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 and this to optimize their game. That's when you take it to the next level. And that's where Jeff Gordon is very strong is that he can do all three. And I think that's where we're going to see the value of Jeff Gordon.
0: Yeah. He, um, he, he tends to be synergistic in his approach where he, he puts everyone together in a room and lets it organically come together where they share information and they all improve in some way based on working together. Whereas traditionally these departments have been completely separated.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is the point departments in any situation need to talk to each other Yeah, in any situation. And I think we have heard significant ties between analytics development. They're throwing and scouting, of course, because that kind of goes full circle, but you need to be a machine that churns in new players consistently. The Canadians had a massive hole between 2012 and 2017 where they weren't churning out a ton of young players. In fact, Arturi Lekinen is the only was the only consistent nhl player up until last year that was picked in that time frame now there's jake evans so it's they have to get better in that and especially with their first round picks and i think that that's going to be a major point the canadians have four first round picks over the next two years and you can even factor in their their second round pick this year which is basically a late first as well so you got to hit on those. If you're uh, a retooling, rebuilding, I don't, whatever nomenclature you want to use, if you are not maximizing those picks, you are in the wrong business.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're definitely, it's its a rebuild. Right? It doesn't matter yeah, what whatever, they use. Whatever it's, you want to call it, exactly. Clearly, yeah. Now, granted, um, Bergevin did a little favor before leaving in that him and Timmons brought in a ton of new prospects stockpiled a ton of picks so the rebuild's not going to take quite as long as a traditional one would no. but that doesn't mean it's not going to take you know it's not going to happen overnight
1: so no, and it's because they have pieces already right like yeah. it's it's a failed retool I mean, let's call it a spade a spade right so there's yeah. still the high-end um assets that they acquired during that retool that are still there and this is what the time frame should have been back then but they've decided to go quickly because they had they still had Carey Price and Shea Weber in their in, in their playing days. And so it makes sense. But now you have you don't have a, a raise the the sky kind of scenario where you have to trade everybody. You have Nick Suzuki, Cole Caulfield, Caden Gooley, Joshua, Hla, Riley Kidney. Like their prospect pool is already in the top half of the of the NHL. And now you're throwing in the first overall pick, another first round pick, an early second. And then more picks next year. Um, I think that they have a head start on a full rebuild by about two years, I would say, because I, you know, Caulfield and Gouley and back-to-back drafts are really good picks to get. Um, So I don't think it'll take five, six years, like everybody else thinks um, because they don't have to deconstruct their roster to that degree. Do I think it's going to take time? Yes. I don't think they're going to be competitive next year. Um, If you look at the division, Uh, This is no disrespect to the Montreal Canadiens and Kent Hughes can obviously surprise us still, but the way the roster is shaping up and the way that their salary structure will limit any movement whatsoever, unless there's a fire sale of Montreal Canadiens players that we don't see coming. They're going to be probably around. I don't think they're going to finish dead last, but I, I don't see them being out of the top. The bottom 10 is what I'm saying. When you have, you know, the established top four of, of Boston. I, I think Bergeron is going back to Boston. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't worry about that. Those that think he's coming to Montreal, I don't think that's going to happen. So I think Boston's still going to be where they're going to be. I think the Leafs are going to be even hungrier if they're eliminated by the time this episode comes out. I think they're going to be even hungrier next year. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not Frost. allowed to show favoritism anymore, <laughs> that it'd be even for the Canadians or, their, or, or against their rivals. So I'm just stating if they do lose, then they're going to be aggressive. And I don't think they're going to go backwards. I think they're going to trade someone to go forward. Um, yeah. Tampa Bay is going to be Tampa Bay. They're not losing any core pieces next year. And the same thing can be said about Florida. I think they're going to lock up Huberto this summer. So how do you compete with that? You can't. Like, even if you could potentially compete with Boston for that last spot, we're, no one's talking about Detroit, who is going to be a much better team next year. Uh, Simon Edvinson is coming over as well. So another young stud defenseman. Ottawa is going to be better. They're going to be more aggressive this year than ever before in filling out that roster. And they have the cap space. So we'll see what they can do. And then Buffalo finished the year on fire. They were right next to the Montreal Canadiens for the longest point in the standings and then shot up towards the last bit of the season. And if they're able to continue along that path, they can also make it very difficult for the Canadians. So like, I don't see the Canadians being able to compete with that, with the roster they have and the way that it's made up, especially with their, their issues in goaltending. And I just don't, if that's going to be the case, yeah. then you need to focus on development. You need to focus on scouting and you need to, can't use aesthetic, you know, it's going to take some time. Now,
0: I think that, uh, I think everything you just said kind of points to why it's a good time to have the rebuild now. Instead of trying to go into an arms race when you're, you don't have the weapons to do so, just reload, just sit back, reload. Let them, let them kill each other back and forth while you, while you get healthy, while you get better. <clears throat> just under St. Louis last season, um, St. Louis systems and concepts brought the team to about the midpoint uh, of most. Statistical uh, you know offensive and defensively, so you know if if they're hovering around eighteenth in all those categories, then it's not out of the realm of possibility to say maybe they can finish 20th in the league, you know get a 10 to twelve pick, which better than this year, it's still competitive, but it's still going to give you a really good pick next year and, and I think that's an, a really good uh, a good step forward.
1: I I honestly think they'll still pick top ten next year. I'm 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 of that. Yeah. I think they'll take a step forward, like we saw throughout the year. Like we have seen teams have point per game players and still miss the playoffs by a large margin. I mean, we can just look at the early Pittsburgh Penguins and Washington Capitals that had two 100 point rookies on their roster and still were dead like number second to last and third to last in the NHL that year. So it goes to show you that you can still develop elite young talent while still having holes in your team and finishing low, as long as they're hitting their stride as you're funneling more young players into the team, that's your recipe for success because those original players are going to be off their entry-level contracts as these young ones will bring in that value on their entry-level contracts. So you're consistently rotating value. And that is the key in the salary cap area is to rotate that value teams that do best. You look at Tampa Bay, for example, they did best because they had key players on contracts that were either entry level or bridged. Uh, you look at Kucherov, you look at Sergachev, you look at Point; those were bridged contracts. Right now, if you're looking at Colorado, Colorado is getting great value from guys like Bowen Byron, Kale McCarr. Uh, well, I mean, not anymore. It's still great value, but I'm just saying it's not you know an entry level contract. Yeah. Um, and then Bowen Byron is going to provide them with great value for the next two years as well. So that when those players are able to come in and do as well as they have, and I I want to remember one more guy, Seth Jarvis for the Carolina Hurricanes has been great value for them in the playoffs. Again, entry-level contract. So when you have an established core, you're able to just funnel these guys in, that's when you, that's when you have sustained winning. And I think that's what Ken Hughes wants to do.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to date myself here by, by saying this, but I remember when Joe Sackick started in the NHL as a Nordique, when he stepped in, he he was having hundred point seasons and the Nordiques were at the dead last. They're at the bottom of the standings. And eventually once they moved and got a goalie, they started winning cups. And that's, that's exactly what you were pointing at. You gotta, you gotta get your best players to reach their peaks at the time when you have the most support for them. And it looks to be the plan for Hughes. I think so. Honestly,
1: like, and I'm not tooting my own horn, I swear, okay, when it comes to this, body language for me is everything. And I seeing a a general manager on TV versus like seeing him live, you you see body language a little bit more and you pay attention to the subtleties. At his end of season press conference, uh, Ken Hughes looked like an individual that was ready to partake in patience. He was an individual that, whose main goal was to gain some liquidity in his salary cap structure and focus on his youth. And, you know, he spent a lot of time going over the players that impressed him that are young and coming up. And it wasn't about being a competitive team next year. It was about building a process and a culture that would allow for consistent winning uh, that we see from a lot of the big teams in this league. And I think that, In the past, we've seen a lot of general managers take shortcuts. You know, this isn't a sole jab at Mark Bergevin. Uh, As much as I respect the man greatly, the Bob Ganey uh, and and Pierre Gauthier combo in 2009, 2010. Granted, that team went to the Stanley Cup uh, Eastern Conference Finals, but they rebuilt through free agency, which at the end of the day came back to bite them because the one trade they made was Scott Gomez, and that was terrible to begin with, and they had to buy it out. Thankfully, there was, uh, back then, uh, a compliance buyout, so you, you were allowed to buy them out without it being a problem. But, again, it goes to show you constantly cutting corners. The Canadians have never truly rebuilt as a franchise. Never. There was a period in time where it looked like that, in the early 2000s, where they had multiple first-round picks and back-to-back drafts, and those players allowed them to be a, a good team in 07, 08, 09. Remember those in 08, especially when they, again, Went to the conference, Eastern Conference finals, or no, I believe the second round. I apologize. Yeah, they beat Um, Boston that year. They beat Boston, but lost to Philly. I remember it was on my birthday. Um, And so what ended up happening is that it was consistently cutting corners because they had good core pieces. They couldn't necessarily be bad, but they weren't good at going and and being patient and going to get the right pieces. They kept forcing it. So we had situations where like the Canadians gave up a first round pick for Alex, for one year of Alex Tanguy. Yeah. Basically 60 some odd me. games of Alex yeah, it, was, it was basically a rental. And it, it, this consistently happened. Bergeron was guilty of the exact same thing. And it's situations like that that frustrate you because, you know, Bergeron, for example, had a great core of, of Pacioretty, Subban, and Price. All he needed to do was get a number one center. And he thought he had it in Galchenyuk because he had the third overall pick and that's respectable and that's fine. But your job is to go and get another one while he's waiting. This is the benefit that the Canadians have now, say with their first pick, if they decide to to select a guy like Shane Wright. Because the Canadians are weak at center. They're going to be a weak team. But at least they have the, the top guy already for now in Nick Suzuki. Nick Suzuki was basically a man on his own for three months in the NHL. He was the number one, unquestionable number one center. The guy right next, right behind him was Lara Dauphin or uh, Jake Evans for the longest time while Dvorak was out. So by having, you know, a Suzuki, a Dvorak kind of handle, you know, the top end, you can kind of ease in a guy like Shane Wright. And I think if the Canadians are able to, to if they see fit to select him, then th- that would be a change in pace from what we've seen them do with prospects before which is rush them and put them in a situation they're not ready for
0: so that that does bring me to the 2022 draft you you mentioned Shane Wright. now there's some that are of the mind of comparing this draft to next year's draft you know saying it's weak because you don't have the generational talent like Bedard next year who's a special player but You know, we need to tank so we can get that, but there's no guarantees you You win another lottery. Yeah, do both. Yeah, do both next year,
1: and just pick the best player available this year. Who
0: cares? Exactly. So you can't guarantee you're going to get Bedard next year. So you you got the lottery win now. You have this. You you know what you have. So the decision now comes down to Shane Wright or someone else. Now I know. Simon Boavard over uh, on 91.9 was talking about Conor Geeky, but I think he says that more to kind of get the ball rolling in the discussions.
1: No, I, I like, I was on that segment actually. That was, so we went back and forth. And what I respect about Simon's way of looking at it is when he's not sure, then like, if he doesn't have a consensus, he'll just like open up the game. And ev- all the outside noise is out, and he just looks at what he likes. Yeah. And yeah, he looks at Geeky's size because he's like, well, when this guy matures and he's optimistic that Geeky is going to fix his his, his explosivity. Um, if that's the case and, and he is able to fix his explosivity, then yeah, I think he could be a number one center. But I still don't think he'd be as effective as Shane Wright. And so the reason for that is because A, I doubt that he's going to fix that explosivity to the point where it's anything more than NHL average um, which won't make him a bad player he's a guaranteed top six center for me like a hundred percent in any other situation if Montreal are picking 10th I would be thrilled if I saw them pick like I would tell Canadians fans to be extremely happy because that is a good hockey player I have no problem no problem but it's because he he a lot of individuals tend to lean on size right they're afraid of the smaller players and that Again, I have always said this, a player has never fallen because they were too big and you regretted it. Never, right? A player has always gone up and was drafted because of his size and there was a regret. We can all think of Logan Brown.
0: Hugh Jackman.
1: um, Pardon me? Hugh Jackman.
0: Or um, Hugh Jackman?
1: sorry. Hugh Jackman would be my first overall pick.
0: Well, I mean, you know, he's he's the
1: Wolverine, but... Yeah, uh, first overall. Huge no, Essman pick. That that's yeah, another. Well, pick I mean coming. we can keep Huge it. Huge You look at uh, Michael McCarron was yeah. picked because of his size. Um, and a lot of my issues. You know, Cole Caulfield falling because of size concerns. And and you know the more you look at it, Kirby Doc going third overall. Maybe was a mistake because they probably should have gone for the smaller, frail center in Trevor Zegers, who's more more spectacular. And so this is why you kind of have to play the role a bit. A lot of it also has to do with the development of the player once the player is drafted. And I think that's a lot. That's what a lot of people are ignoring. So when I look at Shane Wright, I'm not looking at a 17-year-old in my mind. I'm looking at a 16-year-old. I'm looking at a player yeah. that lost 18 months of his development. And a lot of a lot of scouts will just be like, uh, you know, after two, three months, uh, you know, he should be able to pick it up. And he did. And he did. No, no, I'm sorry. Shane Wright had a 1.2 points per game in junior uh, with Kingston from the start of the season till the World Junior Championships. And when he came back from the World Junior Championships, he had a 1.6 point per game. That's an 105-point pace in the OHL. If he had 105 points, ain't nobody questioning him going first overall right now. But it's because numbers and offensive production and because he's not, he's not a spectacular player. And that's you exactly want spectacular players at yeah. first overall. And you know what? Leon Dreisiedel was not a spectacular player at all at that age. He was, you know, a big center playing in the WHL that was really raw and needed development. I think Shane Wright is like that. I think Shane Wright now may disappoint you, but I think in two, three years from now, when he's caught up to the rest of his class, because this isn't a Shane Wright problem, this is an OHL problem. Uh, yeah. and it's, this is the thing, like I've spoken to a lot of OHL players, um, Bell Balooz that plays for the Mississauga Steelheads, Owen Beck, same concept, uh, Ty Nelson that plays against Shane Reich right now, uh, for the North Bay Battalion. Uh, um, even, um, Pavel Mintyukov, who is now just joining the OHL, listening to their different experiences, Mintyukov missed an entire season, could have gone back to Russia, you know, and, and stayed here and trained anyway, all those kids missed a year. Listening to their experience in the first four months of the season versus how it's picking up now, you can you see the difference. You see the distinction. And I always think back and I go, Shane Wright was a dynamite player at the age of 60, well 17, in a U18 tournament last summer. Do do people honestly think there's going to be that that pronounced of a drop drop. off? No, I think that his coach uses him poorly. I think I you know no offense to Luca Caputi, um, but. There's no top end defenseman on that team. It's not a very good team. He's not playing on a dynamite front team. Yeah. There's good offensive uh, players, but they tend to disappear in the playoffs and he's doing well points wise in the playoffs, but he's just not eye-catching as people would like. And I think that's the difference. When you see a guy like you he's eye-catching because he's massive and he moves yeah. quickly. And I like that. And there's nothing, that I, I, there's nothing I dislike about the player. He's a, he's in my top three. And so is Logan Cooley. It's, there are aspects of their games that they are able to do where we watch them that wouldn't be uh, translatable to the NHL. And I think that's the key. Yeah. Whereas when you look at a guy like Yurash Ashlaw he's in, he's great. He's going to be a solid top six power forward, if not top line power forward, he's got the speed, he's got the skills, he's got the shot. Um, obviously defense is something that every young player is going to have to work on, but my issue is, and this is what I like to call it, the, uh, pull URV spectrum, because when you come out of, of, of the Finnish Liga, you're six, four, you're massive. You're already physically built. He's 228 pounds I, I, you can't be that much more, uh, and play the game he wants to play at the NHL. So he's close to physical maturity already. Yeah. Um, So there's not much physical growth that can come from that. So when you start playing against teams whose defensemen are the same size as you and are as physical, if not more physical than you, will he be as effective? Will he be able to play as effective in tight against players that are used to playing in tight spaces? This is what you need to look at. Whereas Shane Wright, we know he can already do that. He's been doing that for a very, very, very long time. Cooley has the same problem. Cooley, a lot of what his coach used to tell me was, hmm, Uh, He's got to work in getting to the high danger areas more often because he tends to play on the perimeter, but when he goes to the high danger areas, he's super creative and he'll deke your dock strap is in the stands because he dekes you right out. So there are flaws in every single one of these players. No player is perfect unless they're generational, and you see it with a guy like uh, Connor McDavid at the time, Sidney Crosby, uh, and you know potentially Connor Bedard. He looks great. So to me, I don't think it takes away from the player. It just forces scouts to have to diversify the way they, they think and evaluate a youngster. And they're not, they've never been put in a situation except for the last two years where development wasn't on the same playing field prospect per prospect. And I yeah. think that's the game.
0: There, there's a lot of, some guys played 20 games. Some guys played 80 games. Some guys played no games last year. And now with Shane Wright, Uh, I feel like his, his main attribute is his his hockey IQ, which could really help translate to the pro game because he already plays that pro style system. He's already, um, you know, he's already got the NHL size.
1: I think he'd be more effective. Um, He'd be more effective. Yeah. Because in junior, there's not much structure to their game or support. Yeah. Puck support is key, right? And this is the thing. And if you watch a lot of the Kingston Frontenacs games, like there's very little puck support. They're very much like to their own, and and the amount of plays he makes that goes to die on their sticks a lot of the time. You're like you feel terrible, but because it's a team full of shooters, he's a pass. He's a pass first guy in that roster right now, which has brought on a ton of criticism because they're like, well, he scored 39 goals at 15. Shouldn't he be scoring like 50 at the age of 17? Well, no, because they're using him differently.
0: Yeah, exactly. This
1: is not a team that's predicated on full octane offense like he was, like Kingston was uh, in, in, in 2019, 2020. It's no longer that.
0: And he I think uh, that if you
1: put him in, the, in an NHL setting with NHL players, like, like wingers that can pass and shoot, like really diversify the way the utilization works, I think you'll see the player that many were expecting.
0: Yeah, a lot of players uh, tend to do better when they're playing with better players, and he seems to be that kind of guy.
1: Yeah. Uh, he
0: has that kind of skill set, and I know a lot of the, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the uh, uh, naysayers are talking about his offensive production. He fil- he only finished eighth in the OHL in scoring, but if you look at who finished ahead of him, he is the only draft eligible player. Everybody else is older oh yeah so yeah, there was a time people. where
1: there was a time where luca del bell Belous had like a good 20 point advantage over him and he caught up yeah and again like there are few top like number one overall picks like Connor bedard for example is great i'm never going to knock him does Connor bedard play on the penalty kill not often no does Connor bedard go up against the top lines of the opposition. No, he goes against their shutdown lines. Shane Wright is used so differently than the way that that actual top-end generational talents were ever used in the CHL, and I think that's my problem, is, is he's not being deployed as the offensive menace that he is. He's being asked to play a role that doesn't necessarily suit his style. When I think of Shane Wright, I think of his under-18s under last May, where he just comes in and is one of the best players like him. and But it was the Connor Bedard and Shane Wright show, basically, last summer. And that's what I remember. That's what I'm going to see. Yes, he struggled in the OHL, but his team was... Like, without Shane Wright on that team, I'm not sure they would have made the playoffs. I'm going to be completely wrong. Probably not. No, I just... I don't think that they have as many 30-goal scorers on their team if it's not for Shane Wright on that team taking on the attention and being double-shifted or or double-covered basically every shift. He's got a spotlight on him and he's going to improve because of it. Do I think that there's that much of a difference between him, Cooley and Slavkovsky? No. And this is where I want to bring it to. I do not want to say, or put Shane right on a pedestal. I just want to point out that this is a very good top three. This is a top three that any team picking in the top three, you know, Montreal, New Jersey, Arizona should be very excited about because there are options. These are going to be three really good players, And I feel like, you know, you don't need to prop one over the other to, to, to value them. I think that they're equally as valuable together and you're really picking at straws at this point, because I think all three of them are going to have a great NHL career. Um, I think you're just
0: looking for who's going to have the larger impact for your team. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And I think this, you know, when you, when you, when you listen to Ken Hughes talk about culture shifts and bringing in winners, I think, I think we see where he's going with this. I think, The Canadians very much like Shane Wright. And the only reason they're in Helsinki right now, in my opinion, is to do due diligence in seeing Slavkovsky alive. And that is not to say that, you know, doing your due diligence is a negative thing. Quite the opposite. Uri Slaavkowski came from being a potential top 10 pick to being a consensus number two, fighting for number one, when no one thought that that was ever going to be a question. So that takes a great amount of, of performance and skill. The only thing that will keep me kind of concerned with him is going to be uh, the long-term production. Because yes, he did well in the Olympics, but he wasn't anywhere near as uh, effective in the Finnish Liga. Um, you know, it wasn't, if you compare the offensive output or the creativity to guys like Kapokako who have the record, for, for under 18 scoring in that league or, <laughs> or, or or, or Marco Granlund or Patrick Liney, he's woefully under them offensively. The main reason why he's at number two is because he had a killer Olympics. And again, yeah, today it, it did he had help a really, me. yeah. And he had a really good world championship game against, um, against France today. He was the most used player for Slovakia, which is fine. And, and, and like I said, you know, like that's a non-pressure situation. I think teams are going to want to see him in an elimination setting. They're going to want to see him in a, in a quarterfinal, a final, see see what happens. Because, you know, playing France is fine and dandy, but I think they want to see him versus NHL caliber talent. That's when you're going to know. And there's still a chance that Slavkovsky winds up being the first overall pick. If he really wows and shows that he's got another gear on top of where he's going, then there's a chance. And you know what? Yeah. It's, it's totally okay if the Canadians are going to play the long game. You take the best player available, and that's totally okay.
0: And my mm-hmm. expectation is going to be Shane, right? I don't expect Stieff so, to be the guy. Uh, I think so too. Having them uh, having Hughes and them go over to uh, Europe to watch the World Championships could be due diligence, as you said, but it could also be for them to take an uh, take a look at other players who they may be willing to trade up for. There, there is they have the assets they could possibly trade up to go for any one of these players that are over there playing now. Um, And on Shane, right. I know it's a long shot. It's possible. You'd
1: yeah, have to trade a heck of a lot. Yeah.
0: But I mean, you know, if you go up five, six spots, it's not, it's not that big of a stretch. If you want to get into the top five. Yeah. Huge stretch, but uh, on Shane, right. Just uh, if anyone believes in fate or they believe in, uh, you know, some kind of destiny. Shane Wright plays for the Frontenacs wearing number fifty-one. It's been fifty-one Pioneer. years since Lefleur was selected first overall, and the draft lottery was won on the tenth of May, which is Lefleur's number retired in the rafters. So, I, I don't know. I think uh, I think the ghosts are telling us something.
1: Look, I'll I'll be pretty straightforward on this i would be shocked if it wasn't shane Wright. i i would be shocked and i understand that there's going to be debate and that's totally okay because this happens once every i don't know 40 years so if you want to get if you want to make sure you you, you get a, a cornerstone franchise player you want to make sure you get one and you know i could understand the anxiety but a lot of the people that are speaking ill of shane Wright in a very aggressive way they're not willing to put their name on that, and there's a reason for that, because there's you could feel a certain way right now, but there is a serious potential of backfire with Shane Wright, because the elite talent has always been there. His his any his shot is already NHL level, like he can probably pot twenty. It's just, you know, at the end of the day, you don't see what you want to see, but you might end up seeing it down the road, and that. If you look at, you know, I always say this, if you look at other first overall picks, Nate McKinnon, a lot of people were nervous about Nate McKinnon in his second, third year, fourth year, because he hadn't taken off. The signs were there. He was looking good, but it just wasn't, it wasn't happening. And then he took off. Leon Dreisaitl, a little worried the first couple of years. Then he took off. It just, and especially with this management team, the way that they're, they're optimally developing their players and communicating them, I have more faith watching them Uh, and seeing them you know do well um, than I do than I did in the past and I think that they're more equipped to handle a player like Shane Wright who hasn't played and they're going to make the best decision for his development and then you're going to be able to go from there.
0: Now you made a good point on Twitter recently about comparing draft classes You, you use the 2014 draft as the comparison to this year's draft where people were saying, you know, you're not going to get a lot of really good players in this draft. I'm kind of unsure. And you look back at 2014 and you put out a list of of names that anyone would jump on right now, if they could add them on their team.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of players in this draft that you, I don't like, I don't buy the fact this is a weak draft. I really like, I don't, I'm sorry. Um, there's a lot of deaths in his draft. I think the strength of his draft is not the top end. It's the 20 to 45 range. I think that a lot of people are, are sleeping on a lot of guys. And to the benefit of teams that have multiple picks in the late first and early second, I think Montreal is one of them, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it's definitely going to be fun because I've got to tell you, and I can tell, this is how I know. There are some drafts where I get to do a top 32 and I get to, well, I mean, it's the first draft I do a top 30 or a second draft. I do a top 32. So not many times, but you do a draft ranking of the first round. And sometimes you reach the end and you're like, Oh man, I got to think of who I would put at like 29 or 30. Like, Oh man. Cause like, I don't really feel like this player should be there, but I might as well because I, I need a 32nd player or a 31st player. I fought with myself with 10 players for the last two spots that just to show you, and this was before the UA teams, just to give you an idea, this was in January. Yeah. So I was fighting with myself then the one I just did on, on Montreal hockey. Now I, if I had hair, I would have pulled it out because there is a lot of talent and I feel like I found it. Yeah, no, (laughs) I, I tried here, but then I had to shave. So here we go. Um, It ended up just making it more intriguing because it warranted maybe more of a top 60, 64 approach where you go more in depth and and you look at what those early picks are. And I've always said it. I've always, always said it. The most valuable pick in the draft outside of first overall, obviously, like we're not going to go there, but the most, the highest value pick, in my opinion, is the first pick of the second round. Which brings
0: me to a point that I wanted to bring up the Canadians hold it. And I was looking at some players, like they'll pick up anyone who slides, but there's one name in particular that I want to know if you think that they should really take a chance on him. And that's Ivan Miroshenko. Instantly. I realize he's got the, he's, he's got Hodgkin's lymphoma. He's going to miss the year, but
1: the skill. Oh my God. The skills top 10 skill. I wouldn't even be surprised if he were gone before Calgary's first round pick. If NHL teams, and I'm knocking on wood because the last, the last thing, uh, sorry, I, I just, kids in cancer, I can't do. The last thing I want uh, is the is to get bad news. If NHL teams get encouraging news on his situation, he will go, in my opinion, in the first round, easy um, and I, I I hope it for him. If it's not Montreal, I wish that kid the best, man. I, that is such a terrible thing to go through at that age. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, if he's available at any point after Montreal speaks first, I would jump on that if I were the Montreal Canadiens because the talent is there. I consistently had him in that top 10 conversation until the news came out. And then I would, like, I even put a nota bene at the end of my ranking saying I would have ranked him, but I don't know where he's at. And yeah. so I know the team's got a little bit of information while they were in Germany. Cause I know he's doing treatment in Germany and um, yeah, you know, I just, I hope, God damn, I just hope the best for the kid and I hope he's a first round pick because he, does, he, he, he deserves it. He should have been unquestionably, uh, you know, one of the top picks of this draft. So yeah. yeah I hope it, for it. Yeah. He'd be a great target.
0: Yeah, skill-wise, absolutely. Uh, the cancer clearly is going to drop him. And he's got the most curable form. So that's the that's the good news there. And they got it early. so
1: Yeah. No, I'm, that, I'm really thankful. That's amazing as, news. I can't, uh, I just can't imagine yeah. going through that as a kid with your family. And, you know, um, I will say this, when he, and I will say when and not if here, because I'm, I'm really rude. But when he does come back from that, what adversity that would say, what character... Does it take to go through that? And I think that that would be more impressive to me than being the MVP in in a midget tournament. I'm sorry. Like to me, that speaks so much volume. And if he is good to go and he's working on returning, then you trust that, you go with that, and you reward that.
0: Yeah. And with the Russian factor as well this year, due to the Ukrainian situation, it might drop him a little bit. That's why I'm thinking 33. 32. Yeah, I,
1: you could see late first round. I've, I've spoken to a lot of uh, individuals within the market that have yeah. said late first round. Like for the top ones late like late first round is what yeah. they're expecting. Because of that Russian factor, Danila Yurov, Gleb uh, Chikazov and and Ivan Mereshchenko in a normal situation would have all gone in the first round.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think it's that big of a stretch for teams to make those picks because if you're picking a, t- a player over there now, you're going to hold his rights indefinitely. So, you yeah. can wait out this situation. Absolutely. Can, if a team has the patience for it, they can do it. And as you said, Hughes is showing that he has patience. So, if that's the be- if
1: you, those are the best players, that's where he's going to go. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I don't think that even if you look at a guy like uh Jeff Gordon, he's never really been afraid to 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 go pick up Russians in his time like Kraftsov was considered a reach uh you know in 2018 uh he was not afraid to make that pick so I'm really not afraid uh I think that they'll be just fine and they can pick up a a guy like Danilo Yurov or or Ivan Maryshenko or Chikazov you know in the late first round or even early second then fantastic that would make it one of the most valuable drafts ever for the Montreal Canadiens
0: Absolutely. And I want to, I want to say now, thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, You're always welcome here. You you know, we, we pride ourselves on being inclusive with everyone in this, in in our hockey community. And we love these passionate discussions that we can have, especially when our guests can bring that passion with them. And you definitely do. So why don't you tell my listeners where they can find your work and where they can find you.
1: Uh, well, so I'm the beat writer for Montreal Hockey Now, so MontrealHockeyNow.com. Uh, if not, uh, I'm pretty active, more more than I should be, I think, at times. On Twitter, uh, MNDamico, um, you can find me there. And uh, on Sundays, uh, if you're in the Montreal area, I'm on TSN 690 at 8 a.m. Uh, and then sporadically on French uh, Radio 91.9 in Montreal.
0: Again. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Uh, I really do appreciate this. And, you know, um, thank you. And for my listeners, uh, remember, if you're talking about it, so are we. Be sure to go to HabsUnfiltered.net to check out all the great giveaways, all the great sponsors, all the promo codes for each sponsor to save you money on amazing products. We'll be right back. back.